Father, we praise you today as a body of believers that in Christ you have had mercy on us. That in Christ you do not treat us as our sins deserve, but to even give us the righteousness of Christ is an incredible thing. And so we praise you for your mercy today, Lord, and we also ask for it. Lord, as we uh, look into your word today and try to absorb some uh, deep truth, some hard truth, would you give us your mercy that we might receive it and not resist it? May our hearts be fertile soil for the word of God to be planted in today, Lord. Thank you for your love and grace to us. Speak to us now through your word, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. And you can have a seat. Well, back in the 80s, remember the 80s? Ryan does. Uh, Back before I came on staff as a pastor here, I worked over on Dublin Road for an insurance company as an accountant. And uh, that was back before 670, so the antediluvian period, you know. And every day was a challenge getting to work. Uh, we didn't know what, where the orange barrels were going to be and how our, we might need to be rerouted to get there. But I do remember one of our routes took us by a church every day. And it was the Corinthian Baptist Church. And I, you know, at first I thought, well, isn't that cool that they wanted a biblical name you know, for a church? But after a while I thought, you know, that's the last church, the church at Corinth, that you'd want to pattern your modern day church after. Uh, maybe the Philippian Baptist Church or the Thessalonican Baptist Church would have been better choices because the church in Corinth in the first century was just full of issues and problems and sins. And we've been discovering that, haven't we, as we've been walking through this book together. Well, if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Man, I've been praying a lot about this message this week and asked a lot of people to pray as... We look at this together. Chapters 1 through 4 that we've studied, uh, in those chapters, Paul is dealing with division in the church. The fact that the church was kind of splintering into these different camps. And he also dealt with the pride and arrogance that was at the root of all that. But in chapter 5, he moves from dealing with division in that church to dealing with immorality in that church. And we'll see that pride is a part of this as well. Now, I need to say that the message today is primarily for believing members of New Life Church. This is church family kind of talk today. So if you're here as a guest, like some folks were last hour, and this is your very first time with us today, you just picked a doozy of a weekend to check out New Life Church, okay? Um, But we're glad you're here, and we welcome you, and we are going to tackle a very... Uh, difficult section of God's Word today. We're working our way through 1 Corinthians, and when we come upon something hard, we don't want to sidestep it or go around it. We want to, we want to tackle it head on and find what God has for us. I want to remind you that Paul was an apostolic overseer. He founded that church in Corinth. He pastored it for a year and a half, then turned it over to his successor, Pastor Apollos. But he was still involved in it even if from a distance. He still felt responsibility for that church and had a desire to speak into the life of the people there. He regularly received reports about what was going on in this body, this church. And one of the things he heard 
prompted this section of the letter, chapter 5. It was an unsettling, disturbing report. Verse 1 says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you in the church and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Verse 2, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Now, we saw in our very first week of this series that Corinth was a very immoral city. It was a port city with lots of merchant travelers coming in, staying for a few days, breaking all the Ten Commandments, and then moving on. And uh, illicit sexual activity was rampant. It was a sex-crazed culture, not unlike the culture that we live in today. Illicit sexual activity was even a part of their worship. There was a temple there. I think I mentioned this, the temple to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love, really the goddess of sex. And a thousand prostitutes served in that temple. And part of worship was going and having sex with these prostitutes. So it was a sex-crazed, sex-saturated culture. And into that culture came the gospel. The preaching of the gospel by Paul and his cohorts, the message of Jesus Christ, perfect life, crucified on a cross, risen from the grave, providing salvation from sin. That's the message that came into Corinth. And people were convicted of their sin and repented and came to Christ. And a church was formed. A a body of believers came together with leaders and teachers. And those new believers began to be taught the ways of Jesus Christ and the word of Christ. And in particular, God's plan for their sexual purity. And it was a struggle for many of them because they'd come out of this immoral lifestyle, this immoral culture, and, and that was still clinging to many of them even as they were attempting to walk with Christ. Now, I need to say that God has always been offended by sexual sin. God's plan for his people has always been for their purity. And the wonderful gift of sex is reserved by our Creator for the covenant marriage relationship. This is the message of the Bible that every kind of sexual activity outside of that marriage relationship is sinful. You can read about it in Genesis from the day when Joseph left his cloak in the hands of a hot Egyptian woman who had latched onto him and wanted to have sex with him, and he ran away saying to himself, how could I do this great sin against my God? All the way through the Old Testament, into the New Testament, in this very Letter, we'll see um, in a couple of weeks, 1 Corinthians 6.18, very clear, flee from sexual immorality. Never is it more clear than in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, listen. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. You know, there are all kinds of sexual immorality. And new forms are being invented every day. I'm on the computer last night Skyping my son down in Virginia, and while we're talking, up pops a little window that says, Want some new sex partners? Click here. The word that Paul uses here in this passage is pornea, porn. 
pornea is the word. It's reported that there is pornea among you. And it's the general term for any and all sexual activity outside of marriage. It includes fornication, which is uh, sex before marriage. It includes adultery, which is a married partner having sex with someone not their spouse. It includes gay sex. It includes any and all kinds of sexual activity outside the marriage covenant. But here in this church, notice there was a particularly disturbing kind of sexual activity going on. It says a man has his father's wife. And apparently this was known. It says it's, it's been reported. So this was going on. It was known. And we would call that what? Incest. Now the language here indicates that this most likely refers to a, a stepmother, not a biological mother. If it had been his biological mother, most likely Paul would have used the term mother. But he says a man has his father's wife. So what was going on probably is this. There was a man who got married and had children, including a son. After a period of time, his wife perhaps died or he was divorced from her. And he remarried another woman. And his son from his first marriage, now grown, has a sexual attraction to his new wife. And so in his home, in his household, a, an illicit sexual relationship is going on. And it's still going on. Paul says, a man has his father's wife. It doesn't say he had his father's wife. This has persisted up to the present, up to the point of Paul's writing. It's going on. We don't know if it resulted in a divorce. We don't have a lot of the details, but we know there was this kind of sexual sin taking place in this church. It was known. People apparently knew about it, but the church was not mourning over this sin. They're not confronting it. Instead, they're arrogant, Paul says. You guys are proudly tolerating this open, flagrant sin in your assembly. He said, you're, you're proud of your open and tolerant and affirming stance towards alternative sexual lifestyles. You should rather be mourning, he says. interesting. Paul says the kind of sin being tolerated in that church is not even tolerated among pagans. And we know from the writings of that day from historians that incestuous relationships were actually outside the bounds of the law. And so what we have here is the sin of the church shocking the world. And you know, when that happens, you know something has gone terribly wrong. When unbelievers out there are saying, man, those Christians are doing things that we're not even doing. And they were not grieved over it, but Paul was deeply grieved. Not only over the sin, but over the church's proud tolerance of it. And even though he's miles away, he decides he's going to insert himself into this situation from his position of having apostolic authority and oversight. And his heart is just horrified by this. And he decides that he's going to make his opinion known. He's going to speak into the situation. Notice the very stern Directive that he gives in verse 2. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Literally, put him out of the fellowship. He says it again in verse 7, and just so he won't be misunderstood, he says it again in verse 13. Purge the wicked man from among you. Verse 3, for though I am absent in body, I'm not there, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. 
Now, I think we need to understand that it's obvious from the context and from Paul's tone that this man who was committing this sin was unrepentant. He was unrepentant. The affair is still going on. A family is being torn apart and ruined. A church is being tarnished. God is being offended. There is no repentance, but nobody's doing anything about it. Neither the members of the church nor the leadership is addressing this. And so Paul says, I'm going to address it. I'm going to bring some moral clarity here where apparently there's some haziness. This is wrong. This is offensive to God. It's wicked. I'm pronouncing judgment on this man. Put him out. Exercise what's often called church discipline. Put this unrepentant, hard-hearted man out of your fellowship. Now, I think it's interesting here that, that membership, church membership, is assumed. Before you can put somebody out, there has to be something that you're in. And church membership is kind of taking a beating these days on certain fronts. And we're going to address this a little bit later more. But Paul tells the church, remove the man, assuming there's something to remove, remove him from, a, a defined community of people. Verse 4, he tells them how to do it. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Well, there's a nice, light, fluffy, seeker-sensitive message, huh? Turn the guy over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. This is a stunning, direct statement that he's making here. Serious business. Notice the clarity. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, I want something to happen when you've, when you've come together, he says. And of course, in the name of the Lord Jesus, we use that term a lot, don't we? We pray in his name. We serve in his name. It means this is what Jesus would want. Jesus approves this. He's supportive of this. He's behind this. Jesus' viewpoint is being represented here in the putting of this man out of the fellowship and the delivering of him to Satan. Similar to what it says in Matthew 18 in the context of church discipline where Jesus says, where two or three are together in my name, I am there in the midst of them, and what is bound on earth will be bound in heaven. And so he says, come together in the name of Christ. My spirit will be present with you. I take that to mean Paul is physically absent, but he's going to be praying over this situation from wherever he is. And with the power of the Lord Jesus, the dunamis, that's the word, the dynamite power of Jesus present, something powerful is going to happen in those moments that's going to change things for that man. And what does he say to do? Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Wow. Wow. Church, come together, and with the full weight of the authority of Jesus Christ and the full weight of authority of the Apostle Paul, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What does this mean? Well, there's only one other passage in the New Testament that even uses language like this. It's in 1 Timothy. Paul's writing again, and he said, I have handed Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Interesting. That helps us a little bit. But you've got to go to the Old Testament, to Job chapter 2, where in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you find this same phrase, 
handing over to Satan. And you know who got handed over? Job. Remember, Satan had come to God and said, you know, your servant Job down there, he serves you and he worships you, but who wouldn't? You've made his life great. Remove your hand of protection, remove your hand of blessing from Job's life, and watch him. He'll curse you and, and curse you to your face. And God says in Job 2.6, or it says that God handed Job over to Satan. And the next verse says that Satan afflicted Job with boils from the sole of his feet to the top of his head. You see, handing someone over to Satan is a solemn spiritual act in which a church removes a hardened, unrepentant fellow church member <coughs> excuse me, from the fellowship, thereby removing him from God's protection, turning him over to the devil to wreak havoc in his body. That's what it means, the destruction of the flesh. Wreak havoc in his body until he repents of his sin. It could mean boils, it could mean disease, it could mean affliction with the goal that that person will feel isolated from the body of Christ and sick and those will be incentives for him to come humbly in repentance. What's interesting to me is that God uses Satan as his rod of chastisement, his rod of discipline in his children. Satan is the unwitting servant of Jehovah. Did you know that? <laughs> and he's on a leash. And like with Job, God says, I'm handing him over to you, but there are boundaries there. You can only go so far. You can't take his life. Like with Paul and his thorn in the flesh, God using the evil one to discipline his children for their good so that they will repent. That's what it says. So that, why, why do this? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So that his spirit may be saved, so that the guy will get saved. You say, well, I thought he was already saved. He's in the church. He's professing to be a Christian. Did you know that not everyone who professes to be a Christian is a Christian? Not everyone who says they're born again is born again. I love the way John Piper says it. The proof of your pardon is your passion for purity. That's how you know who the true believers are. So this guy was in the fellowship there. He was a church member, claimed to be a Christian, living this blatantly immoral life. And Paul says, deliver him over the Satan and remove him from the fellowship so that he'll repent and be saved, that his spirit will be saved on the day of the Lord. Wow. Severe stuff. Then there's a warning, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. <laughs> You know, boasting about how tolerant you are, that you're letting this sin go on so that God's grace can be magnified somehow. This is not a good thing. Here's the warning. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, that was a, that was a statement. That was an idiom in those days. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. How many of you know what leaven is? Okay. How many of you know what yeast is? Kind of an equivalent of that. Well, what he's saying is, Sin, undealt with in the body of Christ, will spread like leaven. In ancient times, when a woman was going to bake a loaf of bread, she would get her batch of dough there and, and work it and get it in, you know, into the uh, pan or whatever she was going to bake it in. And before she put it in the kiln to be baked, she would take off, break off a little uh, glob of dough. And she would put that in water and let it over the next few days in the hot Middle Eastern sun sour and ferment 
she would bake her bread. And then later, when she wanted to break, bake her next loaf, she would take out that little lump of dough and put it into the dough of the new batch and knead it all the way through that batch, and that's what would cause it to rise. And then she would go through that same cycle again and again. What's the point? Leaven spreads. Leaven permeates. And he's saying, if you, church, allow that sin to continue in your midst, in your body of believers there, don't think it's going to remain at that level. It's going to grow. It's going to spread throughout the whole body. That's why in verse 7 he says, Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. That's our position in Christ, pure. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, I love this. And the reason I love it is that Paul is not just preaching behavior here. He's not just saying, do better, live right, shape up. He's not just preaching a gospel of moralistic behaviorism. He's tying it to Christ. You see that? This is what I've been trying to do the last couple of years, tying everything to Christ. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And, of course, this harkens back to the Jewish festival of the Passover meal where a lamb was slaughtered. Do you remember when the Jews were enslaved in Egypt? And God was about to inflict the 10th plague on the Egyptians, the taking of the firstborn son. And he said to his people, slaughter a lamb, an innocent spotless lamb. Take the blood, put it on the doorposts. And when the death angel comes, he will pass over you. And you will avoid judgment because of the blood of the lamb. And that's what happened. And Paul is referencing that now. He had taught the Corinthians these truths about their Jewish roots and heritage. And he's saying, look, Jesus Christ is our true, ultimate Passover lamb. He died on a cross. He shed his blood to free us from sin, from sin. So why would you go back and embrace a lifestyle of blatant, flagrant sin when Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed? As as it says in Titus, to purify for himself a people. So he's saying, this is the... Doing, tolerating sin in your midst, midst is incongruent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival, probably talking about the feast of unleavened bread, which started with the Passover meal and went for the next seven days. And it was during that time that an observant Jew would not keep any leaven in his house. They would sweep all the crumbs out of the house. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Sin is going to spread like leaven, he's saying. Get rid of it. John MacArthur says this, we too are to remove everything from the old life that would taint and permeate the new. As Israel was set free from Egypt as a result of the Passover and was to make a clean break with that oppressor, so the believer is to be totally separated from his old life with all of its sinful attitudes, standards, and habits. Christ died to separate us from bondage to sin and give us a new bondage to righteousness. And that is the only true freedom. You know, some of you are good leaven in this church. Your influence for righteousness and purity and holiness is spreading. Your influence is growing in this body. And we say thank you for that. God bless you. Keep living a holy, pure, righteous life that magnifies Christ. That's the only kind of leaven or yeast we want permeating this body. 
Amen? Well, Paul makes an important clarification here. In verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter, and you go, wait a second, I thought this was 1 Corinthians. Well, there's a previous letter that he had written along the same subject, along the same lines about sexual immorality, apparently. That letter did not make it into the canon of Scripture, did not make it into our Bible. We're not sure why. But he says, I already wrote you guys about this. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And the word means to keep close company with sexually immoral people. But they had misunderstood what he meant. Verse 10, not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of this world or the greedy, swindlers, idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. He realized, I've been misunderstood. I wrote something to this church telling them not to keep close company with immoral people, and they thought I meant the people of the world. It's like, you know, where are you going to go to get away from sin? You can't. You have to go to another planet. That's basically what he's saying. And besides that, the mission of the church is to the world. And so he's reiterating this. You know, I didn't mean no contact with the world. I do mean no compromise, no conformity. But we need to be in the lives of non-believers. Verse 11, let me clarify. Now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who what? Bears the name of brother. Or one translation says, with a so-called brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not to even eat with such a one. So he's saying, you know, and Christians are often guilty of this. We're judgmental of people out in the world, but tolerant of ourselves and our sinfulness. And Paul's saying, that ought to be reversed. Sinners are going to sin. It's in their nature to sin. We ought not be judgmental of the people in the world. But when it comes to the fellowship, the body, the membership of the local church, Christ desires to be a, that his church be a pure, spotless bride. We need to take sin seriously in the fellowship. Very seriously, according to this. Interesting. He expands the list of flagrantly sinful lifestyles that call for putting them out if they're not repented of. And the idea here is that these are habitual pattern lifestyles, okay? And so-called believers who are living this way have been confronted and they are unrepentant, they are hardened. They're saying, don't tell me what to do. I'm living my life the way I want to live it. And he names some things. Sexual immorality, he says. People who are having sex with others who are not their spouses. People who are carrying on secret affairs. People who are viewing pornography. People who are in illicit relationships with others. Then he says greed. It's the word for covetousness. It's so-called believers, professing believers, whose whole life is all about money and accumulating the things that money can buy. As I was praying through this, I just felt like gambling came to my mind. People in the body who have a secret gambling habit that would fall in this category. Idolatry, that's false religion. Slander, 
That's ruining other people's reputations, tearing them down. Drunkenness. That's the hedonistic party lifestyle, you know, every weekend. Swindlers. These are people who cheat others out of what is rightfully theirs. You look at this and you say, well, does Jesus demand that we be perfect? I mean, is he demanding perfection here? No. He knows we're not perfect. But blatant lifestyle sins that tarnish his name and drag his name through the mud that are not repented of? He's saying the people in your midst, in the body there, need to be called into account for these things. You say, well, I thought we were a grace place, you know? I I thought we were a church that was welcoming of any and all people and all their sins and baggage and all of that. And, boy, this doesn't sound like that. And and, and I would say, well, look, when it comes to the, the unbelieving world, we are open, Right? and welcoming to anybody with any amount of baggage that they might have in their lives. But when it comes to being a member of the church, a part of the body, we need to honor Christ and hold holiness high in our midst. High in our midst. It is not the ones who recognize their sin and hunger for righteousness who are to be put out of the fellowship but those who persistently and unrepentantly continue in a pattern of sin about which they've been counseled and warned. Last week I made this statement, we are repenting sinners as Christians, aren't we? And that's true. When we sin because the Spirit of God is in us, convicting us, and because we've experienced the Lord's mercy, we repent of our sins. This is talking about people who refuse to repent. The injunction is to treat them differently once they've been put out. The relationship has changed. He says, don't even eat with them. It's different. Your your hardened unrepentance has changed your relationship with the rest of the body of Christ here. This is hard. Don't act like everything is the same. Don't act like it's okay. It's not okay. When you see this person, you you look at him and say, you know, I'm, I'm still praying that you'll repent. That you'll repent. We don't hate them, but we bar them from the benefits of fellowship and inclusion in the body. Then there's a stunning restatement by Paul. He restates what he's already said there in the last couple verses of chapter 5, verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Interesting language, outsiders and insiders. Do you see that? Again, this presupposes that there's something some covenant relationship, membership, that defines who's in and who's out. Verse 13, God judges those outside. Did you know that sin is only judged in one of two places? Sin is either judged on the cross of Jesus Christ or it's judged in the lake of fire. Paul says outsiders are going to be judged by God. It's not our job to judge unbelievers. God will take care of that. But finally, he says, purge the evil person from among you. And I can hear the resistance inside of some of you saying, but wait a second, I thought we're not supposed to be judging. Doesn't the Bible say, judge not? The most memorized verse in the New Testament. Judge not, lest you be judged. What does the next verse say? For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you in judgment. 
That's in Matthew 7. What Jesus is saying there is, if you're judging people and you're doing the same things they're doing, you're a hypocrite and you're going to be judged for it. But in the book of John, Jesus said, judge righteous judgments. And here in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, you are to judge those inside the church. So there's a difference between being judgmental and making righteous judgments. We're supposed to be making righteous judgments. Well, so what happened to this guy? This guy who had his father's wife. What happened to him? We're not totally sure. I hope that he repented and was restored to the church, don't you? I hope the church carried out Paul's instructions, had that solemn ceremony, delivered the guide over to Satan, put him out of the fellowship. I hope the guy began to feel isolated from this community of believers that he'd grown to love, felt like an outsider. I hope that Satan was commissioned to deal with his body in some way. I hope that the combination of sickness and isolation brought this guy to his senses, and I think that it did. I think it did. Listen to what Paul writes in his next letter to this church, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I think it's talking about this same guy at some point later. Just listen. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, I think he's talking about that guy. He has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for that is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. So I hope that the immoral guy of 1 Corinthians 5 is the repentant and restored guy of 2 Corinthians 2. And if he was, then church discipline worked the way that God wants it to work. And the guy was restored. Now let me take a few moments and draw some applications from this to New Life Church. You still with me? Heavy, huh? Heavy stuff. And we don't want to slide into legalism here. This is not what we're talking about. But we're talking about Christ's desire that his bride, his church, be pure and reflect his character his name be held high and honored among us, and his desire that, repenting, uh, that sinning believers repent and that the church play its role in that process. So I think I've put some numbers on your outline there, right? And are they blank? So I can say whatever I want. So number one, let me say this. Church membership matters. Church membership matters. Church membership defines who is in the flock and who isn't, who wants accountability and who doesn't, who's willing to hold others accountable and who's not willing to take on that responsibility. It's assumed in this passage that such a thing exists because it talks about putting a person out. And for that to happen, you have to have an in and an out. See, not everybody who shows up on a weekend here in this church 
is a member of New Life. Not everybody who's, who's sitting in the seats today wants accountability, wants to come under spiritual authority, wants to be part of a covenant community. Only those who go through the process and take that covenant. And that defines the flock. Here at New Life, we call this becoming a ministry partner. And it involves voluntarily now, placing yourself under spiritual authority, welcoming accountability in your life. It involves making a pledge to serve and give of your resources and to get in a small group. So this is a distinction that matters, church membership. I think we need to realize that. Second, being in a small group matters. That's why it's part of our membership covenant. Because you see, some scholars think that that church in Corinth was 60 to 70 people. So everybody was in each other's lives. Everybody knew each other. Everybody knew each other's business. But we're like a mid-sized church. And so in a mid-sized church, in a larger church, the reality is you could be out there sending up a storm and I'd never know about it. Or none of our leadership might know about it. This is why we've broken our church down into smaller sized groups where you get to know people and they, you do life together and they love you and care for you and they know your, the names of your kids and you pray for each other and share life together. And they know you. They work to stimulate you to grow so that you remain in the fellowship with a pure heart and a good conscience. And if you do stray, those are the people who would most likely come and confront you in love, and they're the people that you'd be most likely to receive that kind of confrontation from because they have relational equity in your life. Does this make sense? I'm in a small group. I love my small group. And one of the guys this week, knowing that I was fretting a little bit about giving this sermon, encouraged me, sent me an email and said, Hey, man, you're the mailman. Deliver the mail. I'm with you. I'm behind you. I'm supportive of you. Such an encouragement to me. I like to think that if I ever stray or get off the path doctrinally or in my lifestyle or behavior, that would be one of probably several groups that would come and speak into my life. And I hope that I would be humble enough to receive that from them. So let me ask you, if, if you're a ministry partner of New Life, if you're a member here, and you're not in a small group, why? Why are you not in a small group? You say, because I don't want that. <laughs> you know, I'm good, I'm fine. But you are missing out on one of the richest experiences of Christian community that exists. And you're missing out on a, a safeguard that God wants in your life because we are all prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. You need to be in a small group. Take steps towards that. Church membership matters. Being in a small group matters. Third, how we view church matters. What is the church to you? You know, walking through what we've walked through this morning, some of you, I know you're chafing under this because you don't view the church that way. What is the church to you? Is it primarily a weekend show? Is the church... Simply a dispenser of religious goods and services like Meyer or Lowe's that you go to to get what you need for yourself or your family? What is the church to you? How do you view it? Is it a building? Is it bricks and mortar? Is that place you go? I'm going to church. Is that how you view the church? Do you see the church kind of like a Christian buffet? 
where you go in and pick and choose the programs that you like for yourself and your kids? Is the church primarily a preaching center to you where you go to hear good sermons? And if that's the case with you, maybe you won't ever come back after today's sermon. (laughs) You know what the church was to Paul? To Paul, the church was primarily a community of believers saved from sin, covenanted together to uphold the honor of Christ, to reflect his character, to love each other, and to share the gospel with the world. That's what the church was to Paul. See, how we view church matters. Something else that matters is sin among us. Sin in the fellowship matters, doesn't it? I mean, if you don't get anything else out of this chapter 5, it's that sin, flagrant, blatant, unrepentant sin in the fellowship matters. Having an open and affirming stance towards any and all alternative sexual lifestyles is not what the Bible advocates when it comes to the members of the church, the believers. I love the way I listened to a Mark Driscoll sermon this week on this, and he said, you know, and he's in Seattle, which has all kinds of alternate lifestyles going on. He says, we're not open and affirming towards that as a church. We're open and discouraging (laughs) towards blatant sexual lifestyles. Sinful lifestyles among us dishonors our head, Jesus. It hurts our fellow members. It blocks God's blessing. It skews our witness to the world. It undermines our primary gospel message to the world, which is salvation from sin. So Jesus has saved us from sin, so why are we going back and embracing the sin that we've been released from? That's confusing to the world. You know that? It it sends a mixed, confusing message to people who don't know Christ when we tolerate blatant sin among us and don't address it. You know what else? Even so-called private sins are not so personal and private when you're part of a body because we're interconnected, interrelated, interdependent. What you do affects me. What I do affects you. In a body, that's the truth. And so God's blessing on a body can be mitigated or blocked because of unrepentant sin in the body? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I know for some of you, this kind of thinking about church is a stretch, but we take God's word seriously, right? Another thing that matters is church discipline. That's the modern-day term for what Paul was describing, putting someone out of the fellowship. Church discipline matters. Churches that refuse or shy away from confronting sinning members inevitably will find that the pagan culture seeps ever more into the church. You know how many churches this has happened to? And you get to the point where the church looks no different than the world. It's indistinguishable from pagan culture around us because we tolerate it a little bit, and like leaven, like yeast, it spread and spread and spread and spread, and you get to the point where you've got leaders and pastors living in open, blatant sin, and nobody's saying a word about it because we're so tolerant. A pure, spotless bride for Christ requires a process for church discipline. And the process is outlined in Matthew 18. And here's what it says. If your brother sins, go to them. 
If you know about something that's going on that is dragging the name of Christ through the mud, you know about it. As a fellow church member, you go to that person personally and privately and say, look, you know, I'm hearing this. Is this going on? I hope not, but is it? And you bring to bear the honor of Christ on that situation. You call your brother to repentance. This has got to change if it's going on. If they humble themselves and repent, it says you've gained your brother. It's, it's good. But if he says, you know, get out of my face. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't answer to you. I live my life the way I want to live it. Then it says bring two or three others with you. Usually we say at that point, bring a small group leader, someone in leadership, so the person gets the, the idea, oh, this is kind of serious, isn't it? Yeah, this is getting serious here. And we're calling upon you in the name of Jesus Christ to turn away from your lifestyle of sin. For your own sake, your family's sake, the body of Christ's sake, for Christ's name. And again, if they humble and repent, that's so awesome. And grace is poured out in that person's life. But if at that point they even say, you know, appreciate what you're saying, I'll have none of it. Then it says you bring it to the church. And we take that to mean you bring it to the elders of the church, this matter, for them to do with as the Spirit leads including the possibility of excluding the unrepentant from the fellowship. Confronting the sinful among us and being willing to exclude the unrepentant from the fellowship is crucial to the health and purity of the church. But the hope and prayer is that discipline will lead to repentance and restoration, right? We're not out to punish and penalize people. Like Galatians 6 says, if someone's overtaken into sin, you who are spiritual, restore them, but in a spirit of meekness and gentleness. Because in your heart, you're saying, you know, it could be me. And it might be me in another situation. So you're not all high and mighty. You're not feeling superior over the sinning brother. You're coming with meekness, saying, please. You're pleading with your brother or sister. Come back. Come back to God. Come back to Christ. Confess your sin. You know what? True love is not equivalent to tolerance. True love is tough on sin, or it's not true love. And something else, being our brother's keeper may actually involve more than we thought. Being our brother's sister's keeper may mean more than just supporting each other in times of hardship or praying for each other or rejoicing when they experience God's blessing. It also must include this willingness to confront each other when we're straying, when we're dragging Jesus' name through the mud. And let me say this, this is not just the responsibility of church leadership. Some of you are hearing this, you're saying, good, I'm glad those guys are going to do all this hard stuff. Well, we can't. Paul didn't address his letter to the leaders at Corinth, it was to the whole church. This is all of our responsibility who are part of the body here. And I'll admit at New Life, we need to figure out better how this should work out in our church. We don't have it all figured out. This is the first time ever that I can remember that before I preached a sermon, I called together the elders of New Life and the pastors of New Life to talk through this and pray through this and just ask, you know, how are we doing in this area? I don't want to get up there on Sunday and act like, you know, we take this seriously because it's in the Bible if we don't. So we're praying this through and trying to discern from the Spirit of God, what, how does this flesh out at New Life Church? How does this become part of that pure, spotless bride of Christ that he so longs for? And how do we do it in such a way that's not, you know, judgmental and pharisaical and 
all of that that so many of you would cringe at because of your experiences early on in your life. In a loving way, how can we do this? Well, I want to finish by talking to us briefly about how to repent. (laughs) Anybody ever taken Repentance 101 in school? Not something really taught, is it? Let me share with you four pieces to repentance, okay? Because that's what's called for when we're in sin. The first piece is to confess something to God. Something's going on in your life. It's displeasing to the Lord. Confessing it to God is where it starts. I love the confession manual that we find in Psalm 51. And I'd like you to read this. Is this written out on your outline? All right, let's read this out loud together, Psalm 51. Here we go. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. These are the words of David, broken, contrite, after his sin with Bathsheba. I've got to tell you many, many times, I've spoken this passage or parts of it to God in confession. God, I am so sorry. I cannot believe what I did, what I watched, and said these words to him. It's a beautiful psalm of confession. This is where it starts, doesn't it? God, I'm one of yours. I'm one of your people. Your spirit lives in me, but I'm convicted about my lifestyle, what I've done or not done, and it's displeased you. Wash me from my sin. The joy of your salvation, verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. That's what we forfeit, isn't it? That's what we give up. It's like, God, I need it back. I miss your joy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I can't live without it. I must confess my sins to you. That's part of it. Second is to confess to others appropriately. You know, there are certain situations where the Spirit of God would call you to not only confess it to God, but to confess it to a certain trusted person as well. You know why? Because until sin is uncovered, it will remain unconquered. And some of us have confessed things a million times vertically to God, but not once humbled ourselves to confess it to a fellow brother or sister in Christ. And it's not being conquered as a result. Because there's a grace that God wants to pour in that he's not going to until you humble yourself. We're going to give you the opportunity even today, before we're done, if the Spirit of God's speaking to you about this, that you can go to a leader, a small group leader, a ministry leader, and 
appropriately confess to them what God has put on your heart. It'll be part of your walk towards victory. Third, forsake your sin. Turn away in disgust from it. See your sin like God does. It's disgusting. You know what it is? It's like taking the spear out of the soldier's hand and ramming it into the chest of Jesus Christ again and again and again. Every time we knowingly, blatantly sin against him. Proverbs 28, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. You keep it covered, you keep it hidden, you keep trying to cover your tracks. You will not prosper in God's sight, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Amen. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? I don't want to judge you and chasten you to that extent. So please turn back to me, God says. Forsake your sin. And then receive God's grace. I heard this quote just yesterday. Whenever sin meets grace, grace always wins. Isn't that good? (laughs) God opposes the proud... That's what James 4 says. He stiff arms proud people, arrogant, unrepentant, hard-hearted. I don't need you telling me what to do. No grace for you. But he pours out grace. He gives grace to the humble. And friends, that's what we all need is more grace from God. In this context, it's the desire and ability to do the will of God. That's his grace poured out into the hearts of humble people who are willing to admit their sin and turn from it. Wow, deep stuff. Will you bow your heads with me? And I am going to ask a couple of our ministry leaders, small group leaders, to take a place along the perimeter of the walls here just so that in a few moments you'll have the opportunity, if God's prompting you, to go confess something to them. And they'll just pray for you They won't, you know, put it on Facebook or whatever. But you may need to do this. Your head's bowed. How many of you would raise your hand and say, I know someone in my life, there's someone who's sinning, and I'm thinking I might need to confront them about it. Would you lift your hands? There's somebody in my life, I think God's calling me, that I'm going to need to say something to them. Anybody else? You need grace, don't you? You need God's courage and leadership in your life. And I'm going to pray for you in just a moment. Some of you, the honest truth about you is you have a sin in your life that you've been holding on to. Maybe you've been hiding it, concealing it. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. A gambling addiction, an affair, pornography addiction. and you're feeling convicted by the Holy Spirit that you need to repent, and I would urge you to repent. For your sake, your family's sake, for the sake of this church body, and mostly for the honor of Christ, whose name you bear. Maybe you need to become a ministry partner here and bring yourself under accountability or get in a small group so that there's people who know you. Avail yourself of that protection that God wants in your life. 
Some of you are struggling with this whole concept, this whole message. You're not accustomed to viewing the church the way that Paul views the church. And I want to pray for you as well. My hope and prayer is that some of you will come in these next few moments as we worship and kneel here at the altar. Maybe you'll bring that Psalm 51 text with you. and You'll just kneel down here and pray and ask God for forgiveness. Some of you may be, maybe your parents and you, you, know, you want your kids to be pure. Maybe you'll come as a parent and kneel and pray for your kids for the purity of their hearts and lives. Maybe you'd like to come and pray for the purity of this church. That's needed also. Or maybe you need to get up and walk to one of these leaders and confess something. These next few moments is your time to do that. So stand with me for prayer, if you would. Lord, I pray for those who you are calling to lovingly, humbly, meekly confront a brother or sister who's living in sin. God, it's not in us to do this, and it's totally countercultural to our society. But I pray you give them grace and courage to do it, to do it according to Matthew 18, and do it in a way that honors you. Lord, I pray for our leadership in this church as we attempt to discern how this should all flesh out here at New Life Church. I pray for my fellow brothers and sisters in this body who are dishonoring your name by their lifestyle and need to repent. Speak to them today, I pray. For those who struggle with this whole way of viewing church, God, will you grant them repentance as well, a change of mind to think about church as a covenant partnership among believers who love and care for each other to this extent. Now speak to us that we might respond.